0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 44, January 17th to January 23rd, 1862. Last week, we talked about James Garfield and his successful action at Middle Creek, defending eastern Kentucky from invasion by Confederate forces under Humphrey Marshall. We also talked about the death of Samuel Colt and gave a better introduction to the new Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Before we get going into this week, I do want to mention that we have a new Patreon episode posted. We did a memoir review, this one's All for the Union, by Elisha Hunt Rhodes, so if that's something that interest you make sure to check out the patreon feed in the description there is a link to the patreon and for essentially any kind of donation you can unlock a extra episode per month so uh, make sure to take advantage of that and obviously uh, the support for the show would be greatly appreciated this week we will pop back into kentucky and fight the battle of mill springs which is classified under another of those battles you may not have heard of, but in fact is very important to the events that will unfurl in early 1862. I want to talk about what is going on out in the far west as well, so that we can properly set up the campaign for the New Mexico Territory, which is coming right around the corner here. In January of 1862, we have more action in Kentucky that will seal the area for the Union. We need to understand the strategic situation in Kentucky in order to fully grasp the Battle of Mill Springs, which is also called the Battle of Logan's Crossroads. So remember, Albert Cindy Johnson is the overall commander of troops in this area. In fact, he's covering probably way too much ground, and we will get into that as 1862 starts to kind of play itself out here. But he is the overall commander in the West, and we can set up the disposition of his troops here. In the western part of Tennessee, there sat Leonidas Polk, who we talked about with Columbus in the Battle of Belmont, who, which welcomed Grant into combat experience for the war. Forts Henry and Donaldson were on the Cumberland and Tennessee Rivers. Those are, forts are going to control both of the approaches uh, into the central part of the state. We also have a base of operations at Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is in the central portion of that state. There are going to be 5,000 men under Simon Bolivar Buckner stationed there. In the eastern part of the state of Kentucky, controlling the Cumberland Gap, we're going to have the previously mentioned Felix Zollicoffer. So, remember, Zollicoffer is the commanding officer at the Battle of Camp Wildcat. His overall commander was George B. Crinanen, And if you are saying that the last name sounds familiar, it definitely should, because we introduced his brother not too long ago fighting for the Union side. His father is also the author of the last-ditch effort to find a compromise and actually avoid the Civil War entirely as well. George had served in the Mexican-American War and on the frontier before the outbreak of hostilities. He is actually going to resign his commission in 1862 and serve unofficially on staffs in the western portion of Virginia. Overall, his forces number probably around the same 5,000, if not more toward 6,000 men. The Cumberland Gap was important to secure, as it did lead into eastern Tennessee, which, remember, is pro-union. Abraham Lincoln would put a lot of emphasis on making sure that these individuals who are still supporting the federal government are protected. And obviously, uh, the state of Tennessee wants to make sure that it stays in Confederate hands. So if you were to look at the Confederate positions from a bird's eye view, they would loosely be laid out all over the southern portion of the Bluegrass State. So still hanging on to a foothold there. Actually, back in late 1861, Zollicoffer would advance into eastern Kentucky. The reasons for this vary. It was officially to establish greater Confederate control in the area. We can see that the setback of Middle Creek in the eastern part of the state may have prompted this. It also could have been to link up potentially with Bowling Green and the troops there. If this line was made more secure, then obviously the Confederate position would be much stronger in southern Kentucky. Pushing out the perimeter would deny the pro-Union East Tennessee from that mentioned federal support. Personally, I think that Zollicoffer was also wishing to right the wrong of Camp Wildcat, having been defeated there back in 1861. Zollicoffer was operating almost independently of his superior Crinin, who is criticized heavily for this campaign. George did not even arrive in the vicinity until shortly before the battle. In January of 1862, Zollicoffer and his men would find themselves on the north side of the Cumberland River. Retreating back to the southern side would provide a barrier between them and the Union forces farther north. Zalacoffer was actually ordered to withdraw back to the southern side, but he was not able to move back. The northern side was seen by him to be the better defensive position. My personal theory of redemption over his defeat at Camp Wildcat, I think, comes to play here because the son of Swiss immigrants would do so without having been ordered. George Thomas would be sent to deal with the rebel threat moving south, with a force of around 4,000 men. We have talked a little about the Confederate plans, and here the overall war strategy comes to light. The Southerners were looking to maintain while the North was going to push for conquest. Buell, who we mentioned last week as the overall commander in this area, would be tasked with taking Nashville. To do so, he would need to protect his eastern flank. The encroachment of Zollicoffer would pose a threat, but Buell would see the ability to take advantage of the political general's error. Beach Grove, the winter camp of the Confederates, had its back to the river. As the Quentin Tarantino movie *Inglorious Bastards proclaims, you don't need to be Stonewall Jackson to know you don't want to fight in a basement. So too, we can now say you don't have to be Don Carlos Buell, to realize you don't want to fight with your back to the river. Not sure if that one will catch on, but if you were able to use that in everyday life, I personally would be tickled. Thomas would also send for Alvin Schuff as reinforcements to bolster his numbers. Criniton would see the mistake by Zollicoffer and wish to take the initiative. If he could defeat Thomas first, then deal with Shupp, there might be a chance to save the mistake made by his subordinate. Fun fact, George had been captured fighting for the Texas Republic against Mexico because he had fought with his back to a river, so at least he understood the predicament that his men were now in. We should point out that oftentimes weather has a great effect on history, and this campaign is no different. As the Union forces marched to meet the Confederates, they became bogged down by the elements. It was cold and rainy, and the men became miserable. The march was slow as the roads became muddy, and we have talked about how that would damper campaigning in the winter. So Thomas would stop at a place called Logan Crossroads. Criniton would arrive and assess the situation at Beach Grove. Retreat back across the Cumberland now seemed to be off the table, as the river had swelled with the rains. The Confederates will move out, facing cold and rain of their own. Zollicoffer and Crennton do not properly use cavalry, and there is very little reconnaissance conducted. They would march their men up the road and engage the enemy wherever they found them. a small portion of Confederate cavalry at least lead the column and make contact with the advanced pickets of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry and 10th Indiana. Eventually, Zollicoffer's brigade will be brought forward, providing enough pressure on the advance units to push them back. The 10th Indiana would be joined by the 4th Kentucky along a fence line bordering a cornfield which was along the road. In an effort to flank the Union position, the 15th Mississippi, the lead regiment of Zollicoffer's, would file into a wooded ravine to take cover. The commander of the 4th Kentucky, that is to say the 4th Kentucky U.S., is Speed Smith Fry. Fry was a former lawyer and county judge native of Kentucky. He had been a captain of volunteers during the war with Mexico and was a strong opinionated supporter of the Union. So, it was Fry who reportedly would jump on a fence line and hurl insults down at the Mississippi infantry, whose taking of cover was deemed cowardly. The Mississippi regiment would oblige the enemy officer and attempt to assault the Union position, taking heavy casualties. We should point out that the story is much the same for the Confederacy here as it has been for many of the battles out west. They were inexperienced and armed poorly. Many of them actually carried obsolete flintlock muskets. Now, if you will remember back when we talked about armaments of the war, you will hopefully remember that a flintlock musket needs to have powder poured into a pan. Well, the problem with that is that if it's wet, then it's not going to work. There are claims by Confederate officers that only a fraction of their soldiers were actually able to fire their weapons. Many were discarded or broken on trees out of frustration. Additionally, they would be firing buck and ball, which if you recall us talking about, this means their effective range is greatly decreased as compared to the rifled weapons the Federals were able to use. The flip side of that is that you're essentially firing a smaller shotgun, so if you get into closer range, the results could be deadly, and there are certain battles later in the war where we will see the results. Now, as the Mississippi Infantry, supported by a Tennessee regiment from Zollicoffer's brigade, traded fire with the Federals, Zollicoffer himself rode forward and discovered a problem. The battlefield was already shrouded with fog, so now, with the added smoke from the black powder weapons, it became tough to see. In an almost comical scenario, the Confederates were given a password of Kentucky to use in poor visibility. When they advanced toward the Union lines, they called out where they were from, and the 4th U.S. Kentucky Infantry responded, Kentucky. After the Confederates let loose their banner and received fire from the supposed friendly regiment, they realized their mistake. The Confederates are divided at this point. A gap has formed in Zollicoffer's lines, which leaves his infantry exposed to potential counterattack. The general would ride forward and reconnoiter for himself the situation. Zollicoffer was reportedly nearsighted, and wearing a white overcoat covering his uniform. Speed Smith Fry also rode to his flank for the same purpose and encountered the enemy general. Both believed the other to be a fellow officer. Zollicoffer reportedly called out, concerned that his men were receiving friendly fire. An aide to the general would realize the mistake, and ride out to discharge his pistol at Fry, who, along with some of his men, returned fire on the two mounted officers, killing them both. I've seen that Fry personally was the one to shoot Zollicoffer with his pistol. The general's remains will be sent back to Nashville for burial, as opposed to the other rebel dead who were interred in mass graves on the battlefield. Despite the loss of Zellicoffer, the rebels brought up the other regiments for support. So too did the Union Army, who especially were able to bring more firepower on the enemy with the addition of an Ohio battery. Two regiments from Tennessee on the Union side would even join the fight. Charges on the federal position would fail. Thomas would understand that the rebel line was faltering and order a general advance of his regiments. The 9th Ohio would fix bayonets and charge the Confederate left, causing a more panicked retreat amongst the enemy. Now the 9th is one of my favorite western regiments, being made up of German immigrants from Cincinnati. Many of these men had been veterans from the wars and revolutions of Europe, making them a formidable opponent even early in the war. A brief stand would see some pressure taken off the Southerners, but they would be forced back to the fortified camp at Beech Grove. Thomas would pursue and bombard the position to force the Confederates to withdraw. They would do so in the night, leaving behind their artillery and supplies. Crittenden, it should be noted, was accused of being drunk during the engagement and seals his professional fate in the rebel army. Overall, there were about a 1,000 casualties between the two sides. Accounts of civilians having to exert much force in removing the frozen bodies from the ground brings forward the harsh realities of combat. In total, the Union had lost 30 battlefield fatalities and 200 wounded. The Confederates were at a total of maybe 500 casualties. The ramifications of Mill Springs, or Fishing Creek, or Logan's Crossroads, would loom large. The Confederates essentially were forced to abandon the line they had formed in southern Kentucky. Eventually, Bowling Green would be evacuated, and Nashville given up. Shiloh, in some ways, is an attempt to gain back the lost territory, but we are not quite there yet. Let's start off with a review of the situation as we left it out west. So John Baylor had invaded New Mexico and claimed territory for the Confederacy. The Texans would defeat a unit of Federals and secure the southern portions of modern-day New Mexico and Arizona. Baylor, in the process, would appoint himself the governor of the territory. Arizona coming into the fold of the Confederacy was not exactly surprising. There had already been a movement to create two states out of the New Mexican territory by those who were more sympathetic to the Southern cause. These individuals would align better with the South. The final straw was the cutting of the overland mail route and actions conducted by raiding Apaches. As mentioned, the Apache threat would receive action by both Union and Confederate forces during the conflict, making this section known as the Three-Cornered War. It is this week, in January of 1862, that Confederate Arizona was officially established and recognized. Now you remember Henry Hopkins Sibley? Well, Sibley will convince Jefferson Davis that he will be able to essentially conduct a self-sustaining campaign. It is important to point out that Davis personally authorizes Sibley to conduct this campaign, perhaps foreboding to the overall outcome, without multiple eyes on this plan. Sibley was a functional alcoholic and prone to outbursts of rage. He very much will overestimate the supply situation in the newly acquired territory, and the amount of support those already living in the area would show the southern states. Part of the problem that we may not necessarily think about was that the Texans had already invaded New Mexico back in the 1840s. Back in the 1840s, of course, New Mexico was actually part of Mexico, right? Mexico, if you recall, had not recognized the Texas Republic. And I guess a sort of benefit of that, if you will, is that if you are in the Republic of Texas, that would mean you are free to raid their territory. So as a part of this lower level action, Texas would move into modern day New Mexico during an expedition Ultimately, it was an unsuccessful venture, the members of the expedition being captured by the Mexican army, but there was an interesting side effect for this region. New Mexicans still did not like Texans, and because Sibley's army was made up of Texas men, there would be an added incentive not to aid their invasion. Mothers in New Mexico would often tell their children, watch out or the Texans will get you, as a kind of... Boogeyman. A great example of the attitude that many had, who still remember the 1840s and still remembered the previous invasion. The ability to capture enemy supplies and use the local populace was what Sibley banked on. Now, if you think that sounds familiar, it probably should, because the same strategy was taken by Humphrey Marshall and his campaign that ended at Middle Creek in Kentucky. Likewise, incursions into Missouri were similar. Now, was their inspiration taken from these different areas? I think quite possibly. I think it also highlights the overall Confederate war plan of maintaining their territory. The only truly offensive campaigns would not waste resources that were seen as more valuable in defending the South, especially in the crucial east. Sibley's army would make its way from San Antonio to Fort Bliss, modern-day El Paso. In the process, he would lose approximately 500 men to disease and desertion, thus seeing the command begin with a setback. Baylor would not get along with Sibley, which is not really a shocker, considering he was not an easy person to get along with. Sibley would want to send Baylor further west, even as far as Arizona, or modern-day Arizona, that is, obviously still not truly grasping the situation. What Baylor had compared to what he would see in Arizona and potentially the kind of reinforcements that would arrive from California, the math just doesn't add up there. But what is the Union Army doing exactly? Remember, we have Canby taking control of the Union forces in the region. The defeat of Major Lind was a major setback and displayed that there would need to be additional troops necessary to defeat the Confederacy. Local volunteer regiments were raised, notably one under Kit Carson. Carson, who could not read or write and had to dictate, have his orders dictated to him was a major morale influence on the new mexican volunteers obviously at this point he's local famous right canby and many others in the regular army though were not convinced that new mexicans were going to get the job done regiments were raised in colorado among the gold mining community making rugged and rowdy soldiers Additionally, a contingent was raised in California and would be marching from the west to join the Union cause. Additional reinforcements from Kansas would be on the way, although it would take them a long time to arrive. Thus, the pieces are almost all set on the board for the New Mexican campaign, and we will see it played out. That should do it for this week. We had the important Battle of Mill Springs in Kentucky. That will change the defensive line formed by the Confederates in that theater. We were also able to head out to the southwest and set up the campaign that's about to happen here in February and March. Next week, we will begin the campaigns for Fort Henry and Donelson, making sure we write the ship to the rocky early beginnings to the Civil War career of one Ulysses S. Grant. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.